Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. This episode of From Page to Practice is a Charter College of Teaching Impact Journal special where I am joined by college members, fellows and chartered teachers to discuss the contents of the latest issue. If you enjoy the discussion and want to get a hold of your own copy of Impact, visit chartered.college and join as a member. Hi, it's great to finally be welcoming you all back to another episode of From Page to Practice. I decided to take a break after my last episode of 2020 as it didn't feel an appropriate time to be expecting teachers to not only be reading edgy books but also to take the time to record and share their thoughts. Amazingly, in the time I've been gone, the downloads of the podcast have been as strong as ever so that must mean lots of new listeners, so hi if you're one of those. I've not fully reconstructed the schedule yet, we'll take it as it comes and who knows what's around the corner these days. So let's get started for today on issue 11 of Impact and 12 different voices discussing 10 different articles which they either read or wrote. Remember as always to share your thoughts on Twitter or Instagram where the hashtag is hashtag page practice podcast and I can be found at page practice pod on Twitter or at page practice podcast on Instagram. To make it easy to navigate, if you have your copy to hand, we'll go in contents page order. So let's start with Lindsay Patience with her reflections on the first article from this issue. Hi, I'm Lindsay Patience. I'm a secondary school business and economics teacher. I'm also the co-founder of an organisation called Flexible Teacher Talent. I read an article in the Impact uh, magazine from the Chartered College of Teaching called Who's Entitled to Be a Senior Secondary School Leader? Black Women Senior Leaders Experiences. It's an article by Claudette Bailey Morrissey and I just thought it was so um, striking really and, and a reminder again of the need to be mindful and active with regard to our own unconscious bias around race and gender um, The article is about black women secondary school leaders and their perceptions of school leadership and the roles that they've had and and their progression through their careers and about how they feel the need to play the game at various points in that um, career progression and the challenges and the outright discrimination that they faced as well as some of the less obvious discrimination. And it's just a taster of of how... um, you know how horrifying and frustrating it must be to be a female black school leader and to be trying to progress as a female black school leader um and it's upsetting to read about the outright discrimination and the challenges that these women face but I'm also struck by the less obvious um aggressions and difficulties and the language that's used to describe these women so in their interviews they talk about being described and and seen as over ambitious and defiant and how there's this perception that being a black woman and a leader is just incompatible it's just that they're not validated in those positions that they've got and I just think no one should have to play the game in that way and 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 change their values and identity and 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 who they are in order to progress so uh, aside from the obvious and 
hideous um, realities that these women face in terms of discrimination. I think the the more subtle point about how they have to adapt their behaviour and, and consider how they be- behave and how they come across because of other people's discrimination and bias, I, I find really hard to stomach. Um, I think it's really important article for getting us to appreciate uh, you know the value in in authentic leadership and and having diverse perspectives and decision making and hopefully it will make people more aware of their own unconscious bias but also more willing to challenge other people's and not just outright discrimination that they see but also this perception and labeling and language used to describe black women who are progressing through the school leadership um roles I, I found it really hard a hard read um, in terms of how frustrating it was, but such an important issue um, with regard to how we all see our own unconscious bias. And I hope to take that forward having read it. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Thank you, Lindsay. I look forward to hearing from you again in this episode with another reflection and a discussion of your own article. Next up, we're considering trainee teachers. Hi, my name's Sarah Davies, and I'm here to talk to you today about an article that was published by Kate Cedar Nichols in regards to how do trainee teachers perceive their future selves as teachers and how can we support them in their careers. I think to get started with this, one of the the key factors that I noticed whilst I was reading the study was how it really got me thinking about how we define a teacher identity and how we define basically what makes us a teacher and what constitutes our ideology behind it. You know, whether this is something that we talk about with the use of frameworks, uh, whether there's a rubric that's used to define our professional practice. It got me thinking a lot about how and, and, you know, the terminology that we use in order to really present these, these development of characters, so to speak. Now, what I loved about Kate's work was actually the fact that the the overall conclusion about it was was the dialogue that takes place between uh, the trainee teacher and the the mentor and and how important that dialogue is and not necessarily about their subject specific skills but more about how they create this schema and this understanding as what type of teacher that this trainee will be aspiring to be on what they want to be able to do with it. And I just, I really appreciated the fact that even though it's just, you know, even though it is a small scale research, it's one that almost acts as a catalyst for these discussions to take place and for a broader understanding um, to be raised in regards to the teacher training and how we can approach it in order to really retain as many of you know these professional colleagues as possible and this this development and this enrichment of self and this identity is definitely it's it's a, a big way forward for it now we talked before about how it is this very it's a small scale research 
um, in her work, Kate goes on to to mention that her school is part of a skit, um, that they're very aware as well. And, and this is what I do love about it. They understood the, the necessity for contextualisation. So they've appreciated the fact that trainees have different experiences. And I suppose one of the big contributing factors to this is how do those experiences then have this effect and this domino effect into the rest of their teaching career? And, you know, when she talks about and she references Freeman and um, Nemza and, and she goes on to talk about how we need to, novice teachers uh, are given this opportunity to learn to think like a teacher, learn to know like a teacher, learn to feel like a teacher and learn to behave like a teacher. It really got me thinking about, well, what what does being a teacher feel like? I mean, I've been doing it for long enough now to, um, can I define it? And this is what I mean by it. It really got me thinking about the longevity of it and, and how we see it in all roles. And, you know, it boils down to things like, can we communicate like a teacher? Do we reflect? Do we, you know, perform situational analysis when we walk into a room? Have we been able to, you know, spot what everyone's doing? Do we know who's engaged with what's going on? Do we know who's likely to deviate from the rest of the environment? And I suppose it's very much that kind of idea towards it, I think. Now, one of the most interesting things was the the actual results that came out of the research that she did. And, you know, on the first table, she talks about how the mixture of secondary and trainee, um, primary trainees, why they chose to get into teaching. And the first question that they asked was, what has led you to this point of wishing to become a teacher? Now, what I found most amazing out of it was the amount of um, colleagues that were both primary and secondary but mainly predominantly primary that actually have experience of teaching prior to becoming a trainee teacher like as a, a TA or an unqualified TA uh, an unqualified teacher and I actually found myself whilst looking at this data having the same kind of perception of it that Kate does later on in the piece in that well this would be something that schools can start to really utilize so she even mentions is it perhaps relevant for schools to think about being proactive in providing roles for unqualified teachers as this might be a successful recruitment strategy now I know myself I went down that route of uh, being an unqualified teacher and a TA prior to becoming a trainee you know a trainee teacher so I would say that that also instilled my appreciation and understanding and desire to become a teacher. So it really does act as a catalyst. And I think it's taking that information and it's really using it to drive the, the possibilities forward, so to speak. Now, one of the other things that was found from it, like so later on, she goes on to talk about um, the two other questions that were asked, which were what kind of a teacher do you want to become and what kind of teacher don't you want to become? And, you know, obviously it talks about the positive attributes and how positive everything is. Um, you know, the, this this idealised perception of a teacher and I think one of the biggest things that seems to come from all of this research is the fact that 
it's almost like we've got this this preconceived idea of what a teacher is become being embedded at the start um you know we've got programs that are very much uh, subject knowledge based and skills based that actually what we're not doing and this is one thing that she focuses on is what we're not doing is we're we're not focusing on the concept of oneself and one's identity and we're not addressing this idea of self and identity in a way that is open and realistic about it. So when we talk about what kind of teacher do you want to become, of course, the positive attitudes are going to be there. And what Kate suggests is that it's when teachers begin to reflect on the negative sides that we actually begin to lose a lot of, you know, the cohort, we, we lose a lot of colleagues because it almost like it becomes consumed in this vacuum of negativity, so to speak. You know, some of the words that she pulls out of it were boring, negative, um, disorganised, lazy, strict, jaded, stuck in their ways. And when we go back to the start and we look at this idea of contextualization, I think that plays a primary role in how this is perceived. So, for example, things like toxic environments or, um, you know, toxic attitudes, exposure to these, no matter how strong your sense of self is, and this idea to almost like self-regulate the realistic part of it, it can easily invade and consume your perception. And that's what I think has this distorting atmosphere on on how trainee teachers then become almost like consumed by the, the negativity that's brought to it. So the article itself provides some fascinating viewpoints and I suppose it brings some numerical data to and, and you know, it really shines a light on, on the concept of identifying what makes a, a teacher a teacher, what, what makes us who we are. And it's not necessarily our subject knowledge, you know, because there will always be, you know, someone who will have more subject knowledge. It's what we can bring to the table as individuals, as humans. And I think the the biggest takeaway from this article is the the dialogue that needs to take place between the mentor and the mentee around about this explicit understanding, the explicit discussions about one's perception of of teaching and you know the opportunities that are there and creating, like I said before, creating that schema about the type of teacher that they would and wouldn't like to be and almost bringing it out into the open with those high hopes but realistic expectations. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events and our brilliant CPD packs which are ready to go staff training sessions. Thank you, Sarah. I've got your book talking about oracy on my shelf. If you're listening and have read it or plan to, then let me know. It could well be on the schedule very, very soon. 
So it seemed I failed at sticking to the contents page order, so now we'll go back a few articles. Next, we have two reflections on mid-career teachers and their development. The first is shared by David Tushingham and Rhianne Rainbow, and the second from Jade Pierce. Hi there, I'm David Tushingham, and I am a lead practitioner in a school in Bristol. Hi, my name is Rhiannon Rainbow, and I'm School Improvement Lead Maths for the Greenshaw Learning Trust. And we've been reading today um, from the Impact Journal uh, from the Chartered College um, and a particular article on continuous professional development and career progression in mid-career teachers. Um, And I thought this article was really interesting to read and maybe really think about what it means to design and develop CPD for teachers who have been teaching for a number of years, um, because they're um, is a perception and a thought that uh, we have this category of mid-career uh, teachers and each one of those teachers has um, quite different needs in terms of what they want to develop in, uh, how far they've progressed within their, their knowledge and expertise in, in various areas um, and it really got me thinking about what it means to design CPD uh, for those teachers. Um, so part of the article um, it shares some Talis data where um, the teacher satisfaction with um, a professional um, broadly decreases with experience. Um, and uh, and it also talks about um, how a lot of that satisfaction um, can come from uh, the quality of the CPD that's being provided. And it made me think about uh, my approach to CPD as well and how when I'm engaged in a CPD at the moment, I'm not looking uh, necessarily at what that workshop um, is trying to deliver. I'm not looking at the um, objectives for Um, that particular workshop. I'm looking more at the structures and I'm looking at um, how it's being delivered. I'm I'm looking at um, how to deliver good CPD. So I'm I'm looking at it with very different lenses. Um, And I've had some wonderful opportunities and and we've we've been working together on quite a few um, little projects where we've been able to take this CPD, I think, and um, and really experience some some sort of high quality CPD for us and so so I don't want to speak for you personally but for me the job satisfaction is, is right up there because of those opportunities that we've had and, and sort of grabbing on with both hands and um, and sort of almost guiding your own CPD a little bit through the wealth of online uh, CPD that's out there. Absolutely I think the menu and the different types of media and platform that people are able to engage with now have have just opened so many more doors than before. So I have I have a family. I've been teaching for nearly 20 years. And also for part of my career, I was a single mum. So actually accessing CPD in the sense of conferences, there were so many barriers there straight away because it would be the either the upfront expense and then having to claim it back or having to pay for it myself. The logistics of who's going to organize the children, the energy and the time and the transport to get there and back. And yes, when you're there on the day, the networking is absolutely priceless at so many of these places. And then the, the hearing the different voices and the di- different narratives and ideas is there as well. But that came at a huge cost. Now, so many of those costs and that those energies having I'd have to put into being able to attend CPD have been almost eradicated because everything is so virtual. And you've got different things such as you've got where Craig Barton and Joe Morgan have taken their normal conference platforms and put them together in online workshops that's asynchronous that you can work through at your own pace. Now, I know they're not the only ones. I'm just thinking of the ones I've been engaging with. And then podcasts, oh, 
podcasts are amazing. And there is there is a whole menu out there for all sorts of different things and voices where you can touch base and you can listen to a podcast on the go, whether you're traveling, you're doing the gardening, or you can switch off in your own little world and you can do it when suits you. There's book clubs, online book clubs. You know, we run one as well. We started one in October and I'll come back to that too. And also I found what's fantastic is buying a ticket for a conference now and they're recording them and sharing the recordings afterwards. So sometimes you might have two sessions that clash and you wanted to go to both. That doesn't matter. Sometimes it might be that you've got an event on that Saturday or somebody is poorly and you can't go. That's okay because you catch up with it at a time that suits you. I like to get up at six o'clock in the morning. That's when I'm really productive, when the house is quiet. And so if I can catch up at a time that suits me, then I'm more likely to engage and see the benefits from it rather than being tired and finding it difficult to engage. So I suppose the thing is, is, is look at what's out there. Drive your own CPD and find what works for you. You know, and, and if it isn't quite there and you think you've got a voice, be 10% braver. That's what you and I have done, Dave. You know, find if, if you struggle and you're not so sure about doing it on your own, find somebody else that you know you can work well together with. You top up each other's energy levels. And if it's something you enjoy, you will get so much out of it. And the people around you will pick up on that energy too. So that that's what I would say about it is look at what's on offer. Look at what fits in with your life and your schedule at the moment. And that cha- that can change. And then also look at what you would like to do and you're really passionate about and invest in that. And it's priceless what you get from it afterwards. Absolutely. And, and I think um, our opportunity that we've had to be able to then deliver CPD ourselves and, and to be able to, to see what works and take like Austin Butterflies from Ron Burgess, but Austin Butterflies first draft and just just to try it and to, to learn from it and to reflect and have those opportunities has been fantastic. And, uh, and it's really good. Um, I, I think just reading through this article, seeing some of the suggestions and ideas for practical solutions. Um, there seems to be a lot of the stuff that we've engaged with. And and I think, um, as, as you said before, the journal clubs or book clubs are really good places to go uh, for that CPD. The, the alternative um, approach to whole school CPD uh, with that flexibility, um, that asynchronous delivery, um, just allowing mid-career te- uh, mid teachers to combine their work and their professional lives, I think it has summed up in this article really, really well. Um, and I think it's well worth a read if you haven't seen it already. And I think Mary Mayat put it really well. She helped. She definitely helped us be 10% braver with our recordings because she said, just share it, put it out there. Don't, don't worry about anything being perfect. People will want to listen to what you've got to say and give them that chance. So we did. And, you know, the, the support we've had from different people for what we do has been fantastic. And people are really forgiving. They are really appreciative. So go on, take a risk, be 10% braver. Thanks, Rhea. It's a delight as always talking with you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts as well. I've really enjoyed reading that article and, uh, and what a pleasure it is to, to be able to do it. And, and off the back of that, I think our recommendation is if you haven't already, have a look at it um, and, and start um, reading around if it's something that interests you because it's something that we've really enjoyed and, and would recommend it. But do what's right for you, of course. Thank you very much, everyone. And it's been great to chat. Thanks, Dave. Bye. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Charter College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust amongst the education community and share your voice to shape your profession. Hi, everybody. 
My name's Jade Pierce. I teach business studies and economics at Walton High School in Staffordshire, where I'm also an assistant head teacher leading on teaching and learning and CPD. I am an evidence lead in education for Staffordshire Research School, and you can find me on Twitter at, at PierceMrs. I'm going to be talking about the impact article Continuing Professional Development and Career Progression in Mid-Year Teachers, a joint article by the Chartered College of Teaching, Sheffield Hallam University and the Education Policy Institute. The article starts by emphasising that despite recent improvements, teacher recruitment and retention is likely to be an issue for years to come and therefore it's crucial that we keep expert teachers in the profession. The authors of the article note that the early career framework, which is being rolled out in September, will give lots of additional support to teachers that are new to joining the profession and so therefore the retention of these teachers is likely to improve. And I would agree with this. I think the early career framework is going to be really well received and I think it's going to give that support that has been missing, which will keep teachers which are new to the profession in teaching, hopefully, um, and give them the support they need to do well in those first few years. However, the authors go on to state that less attention has been given to the needs of mid-career teachers and so more needs to be done to address this and they define mid-career teachers as those that have been in the profession for 5 to 15 years. They go on to say that because of additional caring responsibilities and also feeling confident in the basics of classroom management and teaching practices, these teachers are likely to have very different needs to those teachers that will be supported by the early careers framework. The article then goes on to outline the findings of, of a collaborative project between the Chartered College of Teaching, Sheffield Hallam University and the PI to examine the CPD needs of mid-career teachers and how best to meet these. Firstly, the project found that whilst job satisfaction tends to decrease with experience, factors of the work environment such as CPD and a supportive leadership team have more of an impact on job satisfaction than time in the profession. And I really think that this shows the importance of CPD in the retention of these mid-career teachers. And certainly it seems to be in line with other research, such as that by the Teacher Development Trust, which states that um, high-quality CPD and CPD, which gives teachers autonomy, can be um, one of the biggest factors in ensuring that teachers continue to improve into the midpoint of their career, rather than just for the first few years. However, really worryingly, with regards to CPD, the study found that mid-career teachers reported increased barriers to engaging with CPD, a lack of high-quality CPD, and a lack of relevant CPD opportunities. So this really shows us that we've got a lot of work to do going forward to try and improve the CPD that we're offering to our mid-career or expert teachers. The article states that this highlights the following needs going forward. One, more flexible CPD. Two, more specialised CPD opportunities that go beyond the basics of classroom management and the basic teaching practices and allow mid-career teachers to further develop their expertise. Three, CPD opportunities that recognise and reward expertise in teaching and not only leadership. Four, CPD which is aimed at developing expert teachers rather than just leadership skills. And five, more autonomy in choosing CPD that is relevant to them. The article offers the following practical solutions to achieve this. Firstly, it states that programmes like the Chartered Teacher Programme 
that allows teachers to develop and be recognised for their classroom practice will help to address these needs. Secondly, it states that current pay scales should be reconsidered so that they reflect the importance of expert teachers and enable these teachers to stay in the classroom. This is actually really important, I think. Um, We often don't make enough of teachers that are deciding to stay in the classroom and become experts in teaching and in their subject areas. And I have heard now of a few schools that are starting to develop um, TLR or positions where we are rewarding people for being expert practitioners. And that's something really interesting to look into going forward. Um, Number three, the article states that courses such as the Chartered um, College of Teaching Certificate in Evidence-Informed Education and others run by the Teacher Development Trust give high-quality and relevant CPD opportunities and so should be used as much as possible. It says that more should be made of online CPD opportunities and that we should make in-school CPD relevant and give teachers autonomy over their own continual professional development. And the authors here give the example of a journal club. This is actually where I think the authors miss out quite a lot. I think there's lots of other examples where we can give teachers autonomy over their own CPD. For example, in my school, we have two flexing set days, normally um, just before the summer holidays, where you can accrue hours of CPD that you do throughout the year to have those days off. So you start your summer holidays a little bit early. And we try to give teachers as much independence and autonomy over what they do in those flexi hours so that they can really tailor their CPD to areas that they feel that they need to work in and activities that they are really interested in. Um, So, for example, if you engage in research by reading an article or a paper or a book or attending a conference, that can count towards your uh, your flexi CPD hours. If you attend an optional training uh, twilight session, you can accrue hours for that. And we try to do lots of sessions which might look at the basics of some practices, but will also offer sessions which uh, will really look at enhancing practice as well, not just the basics. So, for example, we might do a beginner's session on retrieval practice for teachers that are new to the school or new to the profession. And then we do um, a further session on retrieval practice for our expert teachers, which will really look at going beyond the basics and using retrieval to um, develop higher order thinking skills and really embedding it into your practice. We also have a teaching and learning inquiry group where teachers can research and do a mini inquiry project on an aspect of their own teaching that they want to improve. And then finally, we allow teachers to do further personalised CPD opportunities such as visiting a colleague in another school and sharing best practice. Other changes that I'm going to make to my practice based on this article. Firstly, I am going to advertise those programmes cited by the authors, such as those by the Chartered College for Teaching and the Teacher Development Trust to our mid-career teachers and look at funding them um, by the school. I also am really interested in um, CPD pathways for teachers, depending on their experience. And I've spoken to a couple of teachers on Twitter recently where I know they either do um, CPD sessions just for middle leaders or 
um, one school that has different CPD opportunities depending on how long you've been in the profession and how experienced you feel. So everyone does CPD, whole school CPD sessions at the same time, but there's one for new teachers, one for mid-career teachers and one for senior leaders. And what you cover in those sessions will be different. Um, and I think that's something to look into and a really nice idea. And then finally... From September, we're going to be rolling out individual and personalised CPD plans that every single teacher will agree with their line manager at the start of the year and will give them autonomy over both the areas that they focus on and their CPD activities. So each teacher will, will sit down with their manager, their line manager, and they might say, right, I really want to work on this aspect of my teaching. Um, it's something that I'm passionate about or it's something that I feel I'm weaker in or it's a strength I want to build on. And then they'll look at the CPD activities that will best help them to meet that and they'll put that down in their plan. Um, and hopefully that's something that will really give these mid-career teachers autonomy over their CPD and make their CPD meaningful and impactful just as this article is discussing. Thank you very much. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you to all three of you. I think you've highlighted a really interesting topic here and it's something I want to think about even more. It's a topic that's important to me, which is why I mentor on the CTEACH course that was mentioned. I'd love to be involved in the kinds of things that Jade discussed in her contribution. Next up, we are looking at diversity and career progression and to speak about this is Lindsay again. Hi, I'm Lindsay Patience. I'm a part-time teacher of economics and business and also the co-founder of an organisation called Flexible Teacher Talent. I just want to talk about an article that I read in the Impact magazine from the Chartered College of Teaching. It's called Supporting Diversity in Teacher Career Progression, One Grammar School's Journey. It's by Desmond Dehan. And what I really loved about this article was how practical it was, the real practical focus of what they had done as a, as a school, as one particular grammar school as part of a trust to encourage uh, diversity and progression uh, within their school. I think it's a really good example of why it's not just enough to say, you know, we don't get diverse applicants, we're not that kind of school, you know, our context means it's very difficult for us to recruit and progress uh, people from diverse backgrounds. Well, the, the understanding that comes across in this article, what I feel comes across very strongly from what he writes is that they they made changes they they changed their context they changed their schools they created opportunities and changed things like the organizational structure and how they recruited and how they progressed staff and what the opportunities were for progression within the school and that helped them to um, open up their their progression routes and their recruitment opportunities to a more diverse range of people one of the quotes from the article is that greater flexibility around part-time working at middle leadership level enabled us to retain strong middle leaders with family commitments coming from my background working in flexible working in schools and, and trying to encourage schools to be more flexible I've really seen how much flexible working can help with diversity if you don't offer flexible working in schools then you really can only progress if you are one type of person if you're a kind of 
main wage earner who is the you know so you know don't have a lot of commitments and you can give all of your time to school that creates a lack of diversity that's why we see that gender um disparity in who becomes head teachers in schools because women are much more likely to have caring responsibilities either for children or for for older family members for their own parents and if you can't work part-time or flexibly and also progress in schools then it will change who gets to the top it will limit people from different backgrounds of getting there and something else that we see in terms of flexibility and diversity is it can take a lot of confidence it takes a lot of um you know confidence in yourself and um confidence to to make a request and to deal with that request if it's rejected and to really kind of put yourself out there going for jobs that are full-time but you want to work flexibly and negotiating that flexible working arrangements that you need and if you're a person from a background with a protected characteristic of any kind whether that be race or sexuality or disability if you're facing systemic prejudice and unconscious bias, then it's really hard for you to, to have the confidence to negotiate in that way. So I think it's really important that we don't just change our culture around diversity and career progression, but that we also make changes actual changes to our organizational structures our opportunities the way we recruit things like blind uh, name recruiting um, and opportunities within schools if we don't create these changes if we don't make the changes within our own organizations then we won't be able to to really say that we're promoting diversity and that we're we're trying to move through miller's types of institutions so miller's talks about the four types of institutions with regard to diversity so either engaged experimenting initiated or uninitiated and lots of schools are are looking and reflecting on their position to see where they fall within those different types of institutions but until we start really focusing on how to move from one category to the next and and kind of not just accepting that this is our context this is how it works here this is the way it works for us we don't do flexible working we don't get diverse applicants if schools are continuing to say that and have that fixed mindset then they won't they won't change The, the school in this article townley grammar they saw the changes because they made the changes themselves. So they started to see an impact on their diversity. And, and you know, he's very reflective in the article. He talks about how that there's still a way to go and the changes that they're making. But um, the first step is is making those changes in your organisations to encourage and embrace diversity and I think this article is just really good example of very practical action focused ways to do that Um, I think it's something that all schools could learn from one of one of the final lines in the article is um, don't be afraid to change your plans because context can change rapidly bringing about new opportunities and challenges and I think 
that's something else that's really key that that reflection and development and changing of your plans you know having a diversity action plan just rolling it out and then not adjusting it whether it works looking at what's successful and changing things that aren't working isn't going to work but being reflective and reviewing it and being really committed to to making those changes and changing your context so that you can be diverse I think is really important and I found the article really inspirational and practical for that. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Thank you, Lindsay. Next, we're going to hear from article author Graham Chisnell and reader Samuel Crime about the Talent Pathways article. Hello, my name's Graham Chisnell, and I'm the CEO of Veritas Multi-Academy Trust, a small primary multi-academy trust in Kent. I've been a head teacher for over 20 years and I started my career in a small primary school called Goodniston Primary in 1998 at the tender age of 26 years old. I've been a primary science lecturer at Canterbury Christchurch University and I'm currently an, I'm a national leader of education and also a lead Ofsted inspector. And I'd like to talk to you about an article that I've written that's been published in the Chartered College of Teaching's journal, Impact, issue number 11. The article is entitled Talent Pathways, Building a Culture of Career Development in Schools. Using a research trip to Singapore as a springboard to my ideas, I created a system within Veritas Multi-Academy Trust of talent pathways to build professional development opportunities for teachers across our schools. I believe that a strong school is one that rests on the foundation of effective career professional development for its teachers. With a backdrop of rising teacher attrition in the UK and a five-year retention rate of 67.7% of those who qualified in 2013, our early career teachers are leaving the profession at an alarming rate. That is one-third of our early career teachers leaving the profession. In order to address the challenges of rising teacher attrition, there needs to be an understanding of the cause. And one common factor in international studies is the quality of professional development afforded to teachers. So, as I said, during a research trip to Singapore on behalf of the British Council, I had the pleasure of spending a fortnight working with 10 brilliant UK school leaders and 10 fantastic Singaporean principals. And knowing that the attrition rate for early career teachers in Singapore was low, I was really interested in finding out why. It was clear that the Singaporean education system really valued the training and development of their teachers from the moment they entered initial teacher training and throughout their career. From their very first year, the newly qualified teacher is watched closely by their leaders and they consider whether that teacher has a future career pathway as an expert teacher, as a school leader or as a senior specialist 
and they develop training and a mentor is then assigned to the teacher who then develops their career pathway. On my return to the UK after this trip, I then set on taking the very best parts of that professional development system in Singapore and applied them to my own organisation. I consulted with staff and team leaders and asked them to speak with their teams to obtain a picture of what professional development opportunities had the most impact on them and their career. We then considered any gaps in those progressions and from that point our talent pathways were formed. Talent pathways are professional development pathways for staff across our organisation. They map out professional development opportunities for staff that lead to strengthening practice and future opportunities. Whilst as an organisation we created talent pathways for volunteers and other staff beyond the curriculum teams, I'll focus in this discussion on our teacher pathways. So, we created the talent pathway system for volunteers, for research, we've got a governance pathway, a teaching assistant pathway, a teaching pathway, an advanced teaching pathway, a head teacher pathway, a trust executive pathway. Each pathway holds a range of continuing professional development opportunities for our teachers. Our team leaders initially discuss the pathway with teachers during appraisal meetings and consider what the Singaporean Ministry of Education calls their ARC approach. The A standing for assignments, the R for building relationships and the C for relevant courses. So we look at tasks that can help the teacher grow. We look at how relationships can be built within their team through those tasks and we link relevant courses either internally through coaching or externally through virtual courses and training courses beyond the school. Or trust. As a trust, we're deeply committed to research practice and all of our staff across the trust engage in research. We even publish our own research journal. So, as a research active organisation, we provide time for our teachers to engage in research projects as the year progresses. I've devised a system called the Research Cycle. and I'm currently writing a book ready to be published later this year that will explore how to build a culture and climate of research in schools. Some of our research systems include a learning ticket, and that's a cash value of £150 that we afford to all of our teaching staff. And they can use that research bursary to spend on their research practice. That might be joining a professional association, buying into a journal, or a range of books, or it might be going on a research visit. And we don't restrict the creativity of our staff. We allow them to spend that £150 bursary as they see fit, provided it's linked to their research question. We also offer a research bursary and that a group of teachers can bid for. One research bursary recently that a teacher bid for was to buy some Lego so that they could develop a research inquiry into the impact of use, using Lego to support reluctant writers in Key Stage 1. We also offer research methodology training on the research cycle that I've devised, and that's a year-long programme that supports the teachers to develop their research-based practice. 
we coach our teachers in sharing what they find out and sharing their practice through blogs. We engage in teach meets and journal clubs to discuss relevant academic journals. All of this creates an excitement around professional development and a discourse with our early career teachers that carries on throughout their career. Another step in our research pathway might be to encourage our teachers to join the Chartered College of Teaching and this provides them with a wider repository of articles and journals and research connections. Or we might encourage them to think about a postgraduate degree. So now our early career teachers have been supported through their research methodology. We use the advanced teacher pathway to help develop their craft and confidence as teachers. On that, it might be to support them through an MPQML as they lead towards subject leadership. We also have a year-long programme to support our new teachers in subject leadership. We might encourage them to take on a lead of a school-wide project, one of those assignments on the ARC model I was talking about earlier. We might encourage them to be a subject leader and a mentor for other subject leaders. We might encourage postgraduate degrees to become an NQT mentor or a senior leader of education within our trust. The important element of this is to build a culture where senior staff act as coaches for our teachers, spotting talent in the teachers and creating a pathway for them through learning and development by design, not by chance. And for our teachers, as they start to hone their craft, we have our leadership talent pathway. Our leadership talent pathway starts with a 360 leadership review. That may form part of the appraisal cycle. We then look at coaching in teams. We look at fellowship status of the Chartered College of Teaching to recognise the quality and commitment to the profession. We use the MPQ system and the MPQH and executive leader might be a course that we target one of our future leaders on. Also, further postgraduate degrees. Leadership placements beyond the school and maybe beyond the trust. We might look at lead training across the trust and encouraging them to be seen as exemplar practitioners, sharing their practice with others. We might look at a governance opportunity to shadow the governors or become a governor in one of the other schools in the, within our trust or beyond. So, with our talent pathway system, our leaders are constantly thinking about the development of our teachers and building confidence in them through coaching, backing that up with a meaningful training programme that is carefully wrapped and designed around the needs of the teachers that we have. So what have I learnt about the talent pathway system? and the impact on my staff. Well, it's very clear that the system motivates teachers to develop their practice and take greater ownership of their own career pathways. This has been demonstrated through the analysis of staff questionnaires and very positive feedback that we've had. And a wider benefit? Well, let's go back to where I started around teacher attrition. We've noticed since introducing our talent pathway programmes that there's been a reduction in teacher resignations across our trust. During the past two years, as an example, the resignation rate 
across our trust for the last two years has shown a reduction in teachers leaving from 19% to just 6% in 2019. While the introduction of talent pathways can't be credited as the only contributory factor to the retention of our teaching staff, teachers do tell us that they feel more supported in their professional development as a result of our talent pathways. And they say they are contributory factors to them remaining in school. So talent pathways strengthen succession planning. They grow future leaders from within our schools. For us, the introduction of talent pathways has taken just under two academic years to become embedded in our trust. While there's a lot still to learn the long, about the long-term impact on both retention of early career teachers and the progression of all staff, early indications do suggest a retention of teachers within our schools. So if you're considering introducing talent pathways as a system of career development at your school, I've got some top tips and those tips you'll be able to read in the article that I've written. I do urge you to have a read and I'd be delighted to hear from you. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events and our brilliant CPD packs which are ready to go staff training sessions. Hi, my name's Sam Crome. I'm a deputy head teacher of a secondary school in Surrey and my Twitter handle is Mr underscore Crome and I'm going to be looking at the article by Graham Chisnell on talent pathways. Now, the premise of this article is that teacher numbers are declining. Um, we are not retaining teachers particularly well and Graham is proposing that a large uh, reason for that could be that we are not developing or offering a diverse range of opportunities for teachers and for the teachers who don't want to sort of just progress up the traditional hierarchy of, I don't know, head of year, SLT, that perhaps we're not offering enough for them to, to make them feel enriched and like there is lots of things that they could do with their expertise um, and their desires to learn more. So he, he cites a, a research trip visit he did to Singapore where he saw that the education system there allowed a classroom teacher to look, look at three different tracks or pathways that they could go into next. Um, so they had a teaching track, a leadership track, a senior specialist track. And, and I think he, he seemed to be quite inspired by that as in the, the teachers got some sort of autonomy about what they could do with their career. Now, Graham is a is the CEO of a MAT, a multi-academy trust, and he has taken uh, the ideas from that visit and applied it to the Veritas MAT that he is the head of. Uh, and I've got to say, the, 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 the way that he's created these pathways are really, really fascinating. So, for example, uh, he's looked at how teachers could go into a research pathway in their school, the advanced teacher pathway in the school, um, a more leadership-based one as well. And there are other ones for other stakeholders like governance or for volunteers or that sort of thing. What well, For me, at the heart of this is that the teachers must go into that multi-academy trust thinking, I've got choice, uh, my choices are valued, so if I want to do a subject specialist route, then that is going to be valued and I, I feel empowered to do that. This links to a recent blog by David Priest, which is brilliant, um, and uh, I hope you can look him up on Twitter because he's a great writer. He talked about identity 
And as a teacher, many of us have their identities rooted in their subject. They have a passion for their subject. They want to learn more about it. They want to become an expert in that subject. But he also talks about how, sadly, sometimes things like being an exam marker or contributing to a subject association or leading a conference regarding your subject, he, he describes it as being seen as a hobby activity and not valued highly enough by by the education sector in the UK. And I thought that was that was a really interesting comment. And, you know, do some people who really love their subject and want to specialise in it even further just feel like that's not valued by, by others if they're not going to go into a traditional hierarchical form of leadership? So I was reflecting on this, this article by Graham in which he outlines the pathways that his multi-academy trust and how he, he runs them. So for example, the people that, the, the teachers that go into these different pathways, they have a chance to do research projects, they're coached during this, uh, they can collaborate with other people. Um, it's not just about them going into paid roles or getting TLRs, this is about their long-term development. Um, and then because the these different pathways exist, for example, the research pathway, the advanced teacher kind of subject specialist pathway, I get the sense that they're very valued and that people doing them feel that that was a, a choice that makes them, that pe other people look up to. Um, and it's not just something you settled for, which perhaps can be the tendency at the moment. Now, one of the things I looked at in my staff wellbeing research project that I ran last year was looking at the heart of how people feel about their work. And one of the models that I really loved was the self-determination theory model. And that idea is that to truly thrive, we need to feel a sense of um, autonomy, where we have some agency and choice over our work. We feel competence, which means we feel good about our job, we're doing better, we're rewarded for doing a good job, we, we can feel that when we're doing well and we specialise in something. Uh, and finally, relatedness, which is how we relate the relationships with our, with our um, staff colleagues, but also in a teach, for, for a teacher, it would also be relationships with students as well. So for me, looking at the, this sort of developmental pathways that we could create in schools really hits home for, for all three of the, of the brand, sorry, the strands of um, self-determination theory. So I'd just like to kind of explore how I've reflected on this so far. Now, I'm a deputy head at my school and um, we are already planning to reflect on how we develop staff um, for the long term. So that's kind of a summer term project is to really think about what we can introduce in September for the, for, for the staff development. So firstly, I think the pathways are a brilliant idea. Um, I think we would, in our particular school context and our multi-academy trust context, consult with a range of people involved to see what kind of pathways would suit our context best, um, how people would kind of enroll into that pathway, where it would take them, that sort of thing. But but for me, it's a really fascinating opportunity just to give people a bit of choice and a bit of buy-in to what they're going to be developing in for the next few years. Gone are the days of one-off CPD sessions. And hopefully now people can think, right, I'm going to specialise in this area um, 
for for a year, two years, three years, and 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 really going to get my teeth stuck into it. And then I could lead a research project on it. I could feedback to other departments or the whole school, or I could take this knowledge to a conference or or contribute to an article with my knowledge. And and that's kind of elevated to this respect um, respectable level in schools, where it's not just about trying to get onto the senior leadership team if that's not what you want to do. Um, so I'm really excited about it. I think Graham Graham's written the article really nicely. He he brings in other studies as well that talk about how how this could be effective too. Um, so I think some of the challenges that could exist here are if you teach in a small school, how could you have the capacity to tell someone or ask someone to be um, or give them the choice to be a research specialist if, I don't know, three out of the six teachers in the school want to do that? Is there enough capacity to do that? Is there enough um, money if, if needs be to fund some of those projects? That's one That's one definite challenge. Now, I work in a multi-academy trust, but even just thinking about the amount of fantastic collaboration that's gone on between schools during lockdown in the last 12 months, I've never known anything like it, really. It makes me think, if you, if you taught in a small school and you felt a bit isolated in some ways... I'm sure that these pathways could maybe even be brought into like a it's quite an organic collaboration between lots of schools, particularly you know a local area where it makes sense to fit together already. Um, so for me, the next steps are looking at Graham's pathways, and hopefully Graham won't mind if I talk to him as well, and thinking about how we can implement it in our schools um, and focus on not just the pathways existing, but how line managers and coaches are utilised by the school to make sure that this is a meaningful progress. The the charts in the article, I really recommend you have a look in impact uh, that Graham's recorded are just brilliant. It's a really visual, um, it looked lovely on a wall, <laughs> on a poster. Um, but the challenge for me now, and, and, and I'm sure lots of you as well, is to think, right, well, how can we make sure that if we are offering different um, pathways with more autonomy for staff that we're actually following through and checking in on their development along the way because that's what it's all down to isn't it are we allowing our teachers to get better every year my final thought as well is that quite often in schools I found at least support staff can sometimes be neglected in terms of their long-term development and I think this pathway plan is a really good opportunity to say, right, we're looking at whole school staff development here, and there's a pathway for this, and there's a pathway for this, and there's a pathway for this. In other words, there's something for everybody, and that's really important for me as well. So my other my other aim, and we're, we're planning this this summer, is that we're focusing on people who want to specialise in their subject, we're focusing on people who want to engage with research and take that to a wider kind of community as well. We're helping people that want to become senior leaders um, or, or heads of year or, or whatever, but also we're looking at the various forms of support stuff across the school, making sure that everyone comes to their work knowing that they can, they will be encouraged to learn on the job. They'll be encouraged to become an expert uh, as far as possible in their role, and they will be given some choice over that. And I think that is an empowering school to work in. That's, that's the kind of school that I would always want to work in, somewhere where I know that I'm fully invested in, and I have a choice to sort of help decide my own development going forward. So I hope that's been useful. I found it a really fascinating article and, and definitely a lot of food for thought. And um, I will be kind of updating on Twitter about how we progress as we go along. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. 
join the Charter College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust amongst the education community and share your voice to shape your profession. Thank you both for these reflections. This pathway system and focus on research sounds great. I hope hearing about this and reading the article will give food for thought to those in positions to influence teachers of element in schools. Next, we're looking at teacher leadership as a model of school leadership. Hi, my name is Anne-Louise Jordan and I'm a deputy head of a school, British school in Madrid, Spain. I've chosen to review the article by Jonathan Doherty, Teacher-Led Leadership as a Model of School Leadership and Professional Development. This article looks at the development of the leadership structures that we have in school and seeks to challenge this by looking at another way of doing things. It's not only the current climate we are living in that's caused this shift, but also due to the diverse backgrounds of many of our educators. Therefore, the old-fashioned hierarchical structure just simply doesn't work anymore. The future of leadership relies on distribution, where the essential ingredient is collaboration. This new form of leadership is not only about distributing roles among all staff, but distributing accountability and having everyone being more responsible for decisions and more involved in where the school is going. The article outlines how this can be achieved through teacher leadership, where all teachers are empowered and trusted to run whole school projects. Teachers are engaged in the vision of the school and work in teams to create this and make this vision a reality. This article is a must read for any school leaders as it outlines very clearly why teacher leadership can and should work, including nine spheres, which show what it looks like in a school and how teachers can influence others as leaders and learners. So the nine spheres are individual teachers engage in learning about their own practice, individual teachers experiment and reflect, teachers share their ideas with other teachers, Teachers collaborate and reflect together on collective work. Teachers interact in groups. Teachers question and advocate, building support and organisational capacity. Teachers engage in collective school-wide improvement. Teachers engage with the wider school community and parents. Teachers share work outside of school or professional organisations. So those are the nine spheres and I think reading that and as a school leader myself, it looks like it just should work. There's no reason why it shouldn't. But what I love most about reading this is that it used up-to-date research to show that teacher leaders make a direct impact on the staff body all the way to the school leaders. One quote that stuck with me was that the function of teacher leaders is to influence colleagues to improve teaching and learning and, as such, teacher leaders also act as professional developers. It made the point in saying that the very old view of leadership isn't working for us in education anymore. We've had a massive shift recently in our educational climate and with this comes change throughout the system. Distributed leadership is the way forward, with teachers being leaders in their craft, from the individuals in their classroom, right up to the directors of the whole school and the policies that encompass the system. Genuinely loved reading this article and it really made me think. So pick it up, give it a read.
Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. In our next contribution, we're going to hear for the last time from Lindsay, this time about her own article focusing on part-time leaders. Hi, I'm Lindsay Patience. I'm a part-time teacher of economics and business, and I'm also the co-founder of an organisation called Flexible Teacher Talent. What Flexible Teacher Talent does is help uh, teachers and school leaders who are looking to work flexibly to find flexible roles in education and we help schools to offer those opportunities. The Twitter handle for Flexible Teacher Talent is at FlexTeachTalent and my personal Twitter handle is at MumsyMe. And so what I want to talk about today is the article that I wrote for the Chartered College of Teaching Impact magazine. So I wrote an article called um, A Raw Deal for Part-Time Leaders. And the reason that I wanted to write something on that was because in my work with Flexible Teacher Talent and in my personal life and, and my friends and people that I come across, I still see it as relatively common that people find leadership and flexible working in schools as incompatible. They seem to be mutually exclusive. If you work part-time, that um, affects your progression, your career progression, and how you see your career progression in schools. And in the work that we do with Flexible Teacher Talent, we we often find people who have been asked to step down from leadership roles if they want to work part-time or um, individuals who are wanting some flexibility for whatever reason in their life maybe they're coming back from maternity leave or have got a parent that they need to care for or some other interests or pursuits that they want to get involved with and they don't want to work full-time anymore and they are just finding a real lack of opportunity, a lack of jobs to go for. They're having their flexible working requests turned down. And I think that feeling from schools that they they kind of don't do flexible working here, that there are some schools that are just really closed to flexible working, is still relatively common. And particularly when you look at jobs in a leadership level. And I think while we can see from the school workforce survey from the DfE that it is an improving picture, so there are more assistant heads and deputy heads, certainly at that level, who are working flexibly than there ever have been before, um, we are still seeing some individuals who feel like it's mutually exclusive to be a school leader and to work flexibly. And I think that's something that's really important for us to to think about and try and address as a sector because we we are falling behind other sectors in terms of our flexible working offer and while there are more and more positive examples of this people individuals and schools who are really embracing flexible working and are finding that there are many benefits of that for their schools and for their employees but also for the pupils for the 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 students at their school get to keep these amazing teachers and have this broad range of leaders and role models and effective experienced teachers in their schools and I think that's something that's so 
important to remember about flexible working and the education sector so in in commerce in you know in the world of business flexible working happens because it's something that makes employees more productive it means they are happier in their work and they get better results now if we translate that into a school scenario we're looking at better outcomes for pupils and I think it's time to move away really from that idea that schools can't be flexible and they can't offer flexible working because we're missing out really on these huge opportunities. The opportunities for developing and retaining staff, for recruiting staff, you know, for getting the best people to come into our profession. Millennials are more and more commonly wanting to work flexibly and if they see teaching as a career where they can work flexibly maybe if they're a classroom teacher or maybe uh, but not in in leadership roles they'll see that lack of career progression for them moving forward if they do want to work flexibly and that's something we just can't really risk we can't we can't really um have a situation where we're not attracting and retaining the best people because you know staff teachers school leaders are so important to how educational outcomes appear for children how, how they will be for children going forward so it's something that I think we really need to focus on improving and my you know the title of the article a raw deal for part-time leaders came about because um, I did some research about TLRs and TLR payments and how they were made to staff who were working part-time and what we found in that research was that it's quite common about half the people who are working part-time and on a TLR are not getting paid the full TLR for doing the full role so and they're either doing uh, the full role but for part-time pay for pro rata TLR payment. And what should really be happening is that if you're working um, part-time, if you're, if you're doing the job part-time and you're only doing part of the responsibilities, then you should be part paid for it. But if you're working part-time but you're still completing the full role, so if you're working from home, if you're completing the role just not on school site or not during those school days that you're paid to work, you shouldn't have your pay prorated for that. You should be paid for the full role that you're completing. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that and there are various reasons why that happens. Um, Not not in small part due to the um, school teachers paying conditions document, which says that any TLR payment for a part-time member of staff should be prorated. But if it's saying the pay should be prorated, I feel very strongly and I know organisations such as Women Ed think this as well, that if your pay is prorated, then your responsibilities should also be prorated. We wouldn't expect a full time member of staff to to work and not be paid for it. So we shouldn't be expecting our part time leaders to do that. And I think um, without the right culture in schools and the right support of part time school leaders, they do get a raw deal. So they don't necessarily get the um, the support and the development opportunities that other full time leaders in schools would get. They're sometimes sidelined and and kind of thought as of, of as not being very ambitious. And I think that's something that we need to address as well. 
And there's also this misconception that that part-time working, you know, part-time leadership roles are only for women and, and women who are mothers so women coming back from maternity leave. And that is a, a key group you know, for flexible teacher talent. That's a key group of people that we work with in finding them flexible working when they return from maternity leave. But that's not the only reason why people want to work flexibly. So I think... If we're talking about how we can take this research and this issue and turn it into practical steps for schools, one of the big things to address is is the culture of flexible working, you know, not having that closed mind attitude to it where they say no flexible working here. If someone requests flexible working, try and work with them to see if it is possible. You know, it is a risk if you've not done it before and if it's something that you've not um done as a school leader and you don't feel confident with but if you don't do it and you don't offer it to those members of staff they'll they'll leave and you'll lose them from your school and and often what we see is you'll lose them from the profession as well and and for retention purposes it's really important that we don't have that Um, and then also in terms of how you how you recruit how you consider flexible working in terms of recruitment so the TES have done a study that shows that if you mention flexible working in your job adverts it can have up to a 12% increase in the number of applications that you get and particularly even more so for jobs like science and maths teacher jobs which you know anyone who's working in a school and trying to recruit science and maths teachers will see that you know that any help with getting a good shortlist together for that would be would be welcomed um but also consideration of things like how they're line managed how you line manage your part-time members of staff and and school leaders give them development opportunities make sure they're not working over and above their pro-rated arrangements they haven't got too many TLR responsibilities that are unpaid or they're not working all of the parents evenings and open evenings when they're only paid for half of the week and half of the time things like that can make quite a big difference to the working life of a school leader so I think from a school's point of view there are things that you can do to improve that culture and just small practical steps like that can make quite a big impact on how leaders who work part-time see themselves and how they're seen within the school and then in terms of individuals, so individuals who are looking to work flexibly as a school leader or who are already working flexibly as a school leader, um, try and have confidence in that and own that. You know, I, I'm a, a middle leader in my school and I have, um, you know, I have a bit of a reputation for um, bringing up issues and kind of taking them to HR and asking why all the part-time members of staff have to attend all of the inset days and um, why we're required to do as much planning as a full-time teacher, things like that, that maybe I'm being a bit of a pain. But the way I see it is if if I make those inquiries, if I get those things straightened out and, and sorted from the perspective of as a part-time worker now myself then that's helping everyone else who comes after me who works flexibly in the school um so while I don't think oh 
yeah, line manager and, and the HR manager particularly like it when I turn up at their office with another question about something relating to flexible working. I think in future that will be appreciated because those conversations have already been had and we've already thought through those processes. But also just that confidence of, you know, I, I get paid part of what a full-time person gets paid and I only get paid for part of the role so I will do that that part of the role and I'll do that really well and I definitely do give over and above that but to make that fair and you know to show that I you know just trying to move away from that idea that being part-time is is something lazy or to be ashamed of and that a part-timer is somehow less committed or or less valuable to a school I I kind of leave very loudly so I say I'll see you on Monday when I leave when I leave school on a Thursday you know I make a big fuss of the fact that I'm I'm leaving for the weekend and that's a three-day weekend for me because I don't get paid for that extra day so I'll see you all on Monday and I think just role modeling that and showing that that is how part-time working works I think is really important for schools and for that that culture case um, but also individuals who are looking to work flexibly, you know, use your networks, use things like Women Ed and the Maternity Teacher, Paternity Teacher Project and, of course, Flexible Teacher Talent because we can help you with applications. We can find people in similar roles to you who are working flexibly and, and put you in touch with them. And we also have this bank of case studies it's hosted on the chartered college of teaching website but it's a list of case studies of people who are already working flexibly and if you're working flexibly yourself providing case studies like that to show other people looking for similar roles that it can be done and to show other head teachers and senior leaders that flexible working can work in their school contexts is something that's really important and really helpful for other people who are looking for flexible working as a leader. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Thank you, Lindsay, for all three of your reflections today. There's plenty to think about from each one of them. Next up, we'll hear about the teacher shortage, firstly from two of the article authors and then a reader reflection. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Becky Morris and I'm from the Department of Education Studies at Warwick University. And I'm joined here with my colleague, Professor Benghuat C from School of Education at Durham University. And we're just here to have a brief chat about an article that we wrote in the most recent edition of Impact, which was Teacher Shortage in England, New Evidence for Understanding and Addressing Current Challenges. And this article links with our ongoing ESRC funded um, research project, which is obviously looking at issues to do with teacher shortage in this country. It's an area that we're really interested in and that we um, we really care about. And we're really keen to engage and, and um, listen to the voices of teachers involved with this, too. Um, I'm going to hand over to Ben Hart, who's going to tell us a little bit more about the project and about the issue of teacher shortage that we've been looking at. Right. Hello. Um, The reason why we started with this project is because we think teachers are very important. I mean, we all acknowledge that teachers are so important to the, um, you know, life outcomes of children. And, you know, we have heard about the shortage of teachers in many countries and especially in England. It's been going on for years. 
and in, especially in shorter subjects and in certain geographical areas. And a lot of money ha uh, has been invested to solve this problem. But uh, we kept, you know, doing all kinds of things. A rough of initiatives have been in, in implemented, you know, from my financial incentives, from working, uh, reducing workload to, you know, alternative ways of getting teachers into school. And yet we still can't solve the problem. So we want to understand this complex uh, issues about, you know, surrounding teacher shortages and how we can under, better understand and support uh, and probably, you know, offer some kind of um, policy decisions on how we can, you know, um, make the situation better. So I think that is the, the, the thing uh, we, we started off uh, with. And so that's why our um, research has got three strands. The first strand is looking at, you know, the career pipeline of people who are going to teaching. And then we want to see what, what decisions people make um, in you know, deciding whether to be a teacher or not. And then the second um, strand is um, looking at um, uh, incentives to... Um, uh, the different look, look at you know the different types of incentives uh, that will encourage people to uh, go into teaching or to stay into teaching and how effective this has been. So we look at we use a systematic review of all you know international you know um, robust studies to understand what is the best way to 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 address these issues. And uh, the, the the other strand is looking at. Um, the secondary data, looking at the government uh, DFE data on the number of teachers we have over time, long time, um, to see what the trends are and to find some kind of explanations for that trend. I think that's basically it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a key um, element of our project, particularly when we were designing it um, quite a few years ago now, was to try and look at how these different strands um, might might kind of explore these issues in more depth. We were quite concerned that some of the some of the literature and some previous projects in this area dealt with teacher shortage in a relatively kind of simplistic way. They weren't always kind of getting to the the real detail of some of the issues, but also some of the solutions that that might exist um, in in helping to solve this. So that was a key key feature of our project and trying to kind of knit together these these different strands that that kind of you know. Um, influence um, teacher shortage in some way. Yeah. Um, thanks, Benghua. I think that's that's a really interesting kind yeah. of summary. Um, one of the things that that we we wanted to look at was kind of why we rate this article for impact. And I think um, I think that's a really good question because sometimes teacher shortage is assumed to be a kind of policy question, and it's something for policymakers to deal with on a on on usually a national level, sometimes a regional level. Um, and so it's it's kind of you know policymakers and academics that that perhaps spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, teacher shortage but actually we felt quite strongly that it is work that teachers and school leaders should be aware of um, as well. So Benghart I wondered if you wanted to just say anything there about you know why, why we want to share our work with, with practitioners in the field. Yeah. Okay. Um, what what came through from our uh, uh, review was that you know um, we look at financial incentives, all kinds of financial incentives from uh, you know raising higher salaries, bonus incentives, scholarships and bursaries, um, housing benefits, and we found that you know a lot of these um, are, are wonderful things. Teachers appreciate that, and and, and they they you know they, they would like to to be acknowledged the, the kind of work they do, but they don't actually work effectively in in getting people to stay 
you know, because a lot of people, a lot of teachers don't do not go into teaching for the money. And if you're attracting people who go into teaching for the money, they're not likely to stay long term. So although while money may be important to them, they are not the things that drive them. They're not the key drivers that encourage people to go into teaching or stay in teaching. It's, it's the kind of, uh, I think teachers look for autonomy, professionalism in the job, the, the voice, you know, and, and they want that kind of support. And sometimes um, what comes through from, you know, we, we don't really have robust um, evidence of, uh, on, on that, but from, you know, other surveys and interviews from teachers and head teachers, the, what comes through is that teachers feel that they're not being um, supported, they're not being uh, recognised for the, the jobs that they do, and that is quite demoralising. And that's something that we feel quite strongly that maybe, you know, some studies more robust studies could be done to see how we can support these teachers, how we can encourage, you know, I mean, the, the things that was mentioned quite often was leadership support, for example, in school, and how school leaders can support teachers in, let's say, managing the school, and managing the classroom, in, you know, um, planning their, their workload, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so key, isn't it? That these um, school working conditions and relationships were were kind of coming through sort of tentatively in the literature. There, there isn't, as you say, the, the strong evidence that we have around the financial incentives. But we really, you know, we really think that from looking at the kind of broader literature that there may be something here. And, and this suggests that, you know, obviously teachers and schools and school leaders can have a real influence in terms of teacher retention and recruitment. Um, and, and so it's not necessarily, you know, just going to be about national policy changing things and, you know, increasing bursaries that's going to get more teachers in. The evidence on that, you know, is, is, isn't necessarily as strong as we would like it to be. So we, we would like to see more work done, which really looks at the kind of school level um, or maybe local level factors, which are kind of influencing um, teacher recruitment and retention. And, and ultimately kind of contributing to, to this teacher shortage issue. We also think that, you know, um, teachers shouldn't just have to only know about research to do with kind of pedagogy and immediate classroom practice. You know, why wouldn't teachers be interested in, in education policy? This is stuff that, that is really sort of important and does influence their their day-to-day -day role potentially. So, so that's another reason why I think we wanted to, to share our work within IMPACT. And we're also, you know, as I said at the beginning, really keen to hear from teachers about this. And we, we do have future projects in the pipeline, which, you know, we, we want to engage with schools and, and teachers and local authorities to, to find out more about more about these issues. Um, so, yeah, Bengha, is there anything else you want to add there about kind of um, what we hope readers will get from our work? Or do we think we've kind of covered that there? Um, no, I think what I was just want to add what you have just said about the the um, the pipeline. Uh, what, one of the things that we did was a, a you know nation, nationwide survey of undergraduates. And what is interesting about our survey or our research compared to previous studies is that we look at different groups of people, people who are going to teaching, and be, as well as people who are not going to teaching, and people who considered but have decided not to go into teaching. And most of the previous studies only look at people who are going to teaching or people who are in teaching and asking them why do you want to go into teaching or why do you not want to go into teaching. Or why do your friends don't know how to go to teaching? Whereas we look, we actually ask undergrad, all undergraduates, regardless of their intention, and say, you know, do, would you like to go to teaching? Why? 
and why not? And we look at their characteristics. We look at their their uh, choice of career, their career choice, and we found that right quite early on, by the time they get to university, people have already made the decision of their for, for their career. So, for example, mm -hmm. if you want to do if you're in veterinary science, you have a dad in dentistry, you are in medicine, you know, you already know what you want to do. <laughs> people are not likely to want to go into teaching. So we found that. Um, you know, to encourage people to go into teaching, it might have to, we might have to go much earlier than that, you know, for, while, while the children are in school. And I think the role models, some of them mentioned, you know, having teachers in school and they, they, they like, um, they enjoy their teachers, they, they look up to their teachers and they, they see teaching as something valuable. And a lot of people who go into teaching see, say that, that the difference between people who want to go into teaching and people who don't, they all say that money is important to them, but what the main key difference is that the people who are going to teaching say that they they enjoy working with young people, they enjoy giving back something to society, they find it's a worthwhile job. And that's a key thing that, you know, um, differentiates between uh, teachers and non-teachers. And so we have to think about who these people are, how can we make te uh, teaching attractive, that people want to, you know, give something back to society, that enjoy working with children and identifies with. And you know that we are encouraging teachers to actually maybe, maybe you know um, you know do their own research to find out why some people their colleagues are not going to teaching, for example. And I think teachers can do their own research as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that we're very aware of from our work with teachers and school leaders is that many of them are engaged with research within schools, whether that's for kind of, you know, official qualifications such as masters or doctorates or, 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 or senior leadership qualifications or more informal kind of research as well. But we think there is real potential there for, for teachers to engage with this, with this issue from a, a kind of classroom and school level perspective. Um, I think it's it's also true to say that at the moment there are lots of kind of new policy developments coming through. So most recently we've kind of seen the the early career framework, which we mentioned in our our article. But this this is a really really interesting policy development, and and we're really keen to see you know how this is implemented and kind of enacted um, within schools. So so we've got this high level policy coming from government, which is designed to contribute to, to improving the teacher shortage issue. But we're, you know, we don't yet have the, the information and the evidence about, you know, how well it might work. And that's important because it, it, it does bring together a number of these um, issues and features that, that are potentially valuable. So things like mentoring, professional development, additional leadership support. We think these might have real promise in terms of retaining yeah. teachers particularly. Um, and so, we, you know, as we mentioned in the article, we're really keen to see um, whether, you know, whether this actually sort of happens and whether whether the policy does mm. have the impact that it's it's designed to. Mm. And that's something, again, that, that, that we would like to engage with teachers and school leaders about. Um, so I think we'll kind of... Um, Summarize there, Benghat. Is there anything else you want to, to add? Yeah, I just want to say also that I think it's quite. I mean, the the, the problem we have in England <clears throat> is the way um, workforce planning is you know being is done because we we although we have a long term projection of the people number and the number of teachers leaving, we can project the number of teachers we want. But what is difficult is that we can't plan before beyond four years because of the change in government. So for example, if you take the recent one, um, uh, you know, we always find that there are some shortage 
uh, short, short shortages in some subjects like you know physics and math and you know modern foreign languages. And one of the reasons why there's a shortage is I think the conception that the, the idea of a shortage is that the target, the, the recruitment, the number of people we recruit is lower than the target set by the government. But this target is changing quite rapidly from year to year. And so you 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 do not have a lag time to recruit the number of graduates to meet that you know, the requirement. And that is why, you know, we have that shortage in countries like Singapore, where they have got the same government for 60 years, 60, over 60 years, they can plan, you know, 30, 20, 30 years ahead. And that, that you know, that is something is a good thing. So maybe one of the things we can, we can think about is maybe planning for workforce, uh, teacher workforce could, should be um, non-political. It could be a national, you know, uh, uh, issue that, you know, should, should not be a political issue. Yeah, well, that's definitely a message for our uh, current education secretary, isn't it? Which we will uh, try and mention to him at some point. Absolutely. We would just like to finish by saying that if any teachers or school leaders or any other readers of our article um, would like, you know, any of our journal articles or other publications, please feel free to get in touch. Or if you have any comments or questions about our research too, we're always happy to, to hear from people and, and discuss our work further. So um, yeah, I hope we hope you enjoy the, uh, the article and thanks very much, everyone. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready-to-go staff training sessions. My name is Tom Whiter, and I'm a teacher of secondary history in Dorset. For this edition of Page of Practice, I'm going to give a short reflection on the teacher shortage in England, a subject of considerable importance, which is concisely evaluated by Rebecca Morris, Ben Quatsi and Stephen Gorard in the latest edition of Impact by the Chartered College of Teaching. Now, like many others in the education sector, I've been pleasantly surprised by the recent jump in people wishing to train to teach as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it is a pleasant surprise because England's schools desperately need more teachers and, importantly, so do its children and young people. It's surprising because the underlying problems which have caused and perpetuate England's teacher shortage remain a daily reality for classroom practitioners up and down the country. Problems such as a high workload, reduced budgets, salaries that are, relatively speaking, still too low, and not to mention the spectre of another public sector pay freeze. So, is it the case that, in the wake of a pandemic that has shaken our sense of life's priorities, that many graduates and other adults are looking to teacher training because they have found themselves wishing to give something back to society, or perhaps hoping to inspire children, young people to become lifelong learners through a subject that they themselves fell in love with at the age of 15. Well, as an optimist, I would like to think that for some of the new recruits, these intrinsic motivations has led them into teaching. And current research would suggest that for some of them, this would indeed be the case. Thinking back to my own decision to enter the profession, intrinsic factors were a significant motivator. But it is more likely that this unexpected wave of new recruits was mostly motivated by extrinsic factors such as a reliable salary or clear career progression and a good pension. And I would be lying to you if I didn't admit that these factors made my decision to enter the profession an easier one to make. Now, the current state of England's job market, which has been shaken up by the pandemic, has made teaching much more enticing than just a few years ago. 
especially for graduates whose entry into the job market comes at a really, really difficult time. However, as Morris C. and Gorad emphasise in their article, these extrinsic financial motivations have had starkly little impact on teacher retention. Based on their evidence, it is likely that this new COVID cohort of trainees will begin to leave the profession after just a few years in the classroom. And this is a problem that has sadly been repeated year after year to the detriment of English children and young people. Morris D. and Gorard do, however, take a cautiously optimistic tone in their article by evaluating the significance of the early career framework. The early career framework is the latest policy initiative from the Department of Education to tackle England's teacher shortage. What makes the early career framework worth getting a little bit excited about is that its focus is not on teacher recruitment, but on teacher retention. Now, this is probably a good time as any to let you know that I am a newly qualified teacher. Looking at the numbers, it is likely that I will not be in the classroom in five years' time. Of course, I'm hoping that I will. Like many NQTs, I found teaching to give me huge purpose in my life, building rewarding relationships with dedicated colleagues and being inspired on a daily basis by young people, meaning that I leave the classroom every Friday evening looking forward to Monday morning, although two days of rest is always desperately needed. Now, my positive view of life as an NQT is down in large parts of my school. During my training year, I was told repeatedly that surviving my first couple of years in the classroom was all about the school. Reflecting on the ups and downs that I've experienced so far of life as a classroom practitioner, I have come to fully understand how important the school is for making it as a teacher. I'll give you an example. In mid-January this year, as teachers and students were settling into our new routine of online learning, which was a, a blended approach of recorded and live lessons, I missed a student into my year eight live lesson as a guest, rather than the student accessing the lesson the usual way through the school's remote learning system. It turned out that the student I admitted wasn't really my lovely year eight student, but someone using their name to gain access to the live lesson in order to hurl vile insults at me through the chat function. When this happened, I froze. The language was so appalling and abusive that for a moment, I forgot how to use my computer. I forgot how to remove a student from a live lesson. But thanks to the IT system flagging up the abusive language, a member of the leadership team was quickly in the live lesson. And after checking myself, they were able to shut down the lesson. And they took responsibility for resolving the issue and crucially did not place any blame on me, even though I was the one who admitted a guest to the live lesson. Within the next few hours, a number of key staff had reached out to me, my head of department, the head of year eight, numerous members of SLT, including the head teacher, and of course, the NQT mentor. This high level of support has been consistent since I started my NQT year and will no doubt continue. Now, this story is just one example as to why I would be genuinely surprised if I left teaching within a few years, thanks to the quality of support I get at my place of work. I know, however, that not all NQTs receive this level of support, which results in dedicated and talented teachers leaving the profession every single year. The early career framework recognises the huge value quality support is to NQTs. The policy is due to begin across England in September later this year, which will last for two years of support for newly qualified teachers. This is just in time for the COVID cohort of trainees, NQTs who, due to school closures, 
may never have taught a full lesson in the classroom, yet we desperately need these new teachers. Morris, C and Gorard are right to be cautiously optimistic. If the DfE can make the early career framework succeed, then more of England's newly recruited teachers will develop into experienced, resilient practitioners who can not only thrive in a demanding career, but can also teach trainees and NQTs how to thrive as well. It will, of course, take years for us to understand whether the early career framework has achieved its aims or not. As Morris, C and Gorad explain, much research has been done into recruitment incentives, but not enough into retention. It could be that this policy may be misguided in its aims. However, it's going in the right direction. And I look forward to seeing how research evaluates the early career framework and whether there may be, at last, an end in sight for England's teacher shortage, which would really benefit the life chances of our children and young people. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Charter College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust amongst the education community and share your voice to shape your profession. Two really interesting contributions there and I'm really grateful to Tom for sharing something quite personal about his experiences as an NQT. Coming to the end of today's podcast, we have a final author contribution. First from Karen Angus Cole about recruiting STEM graduates into teaching. And finally, some key takeaways from the article on retention and progression of teachers from minority ethnic groups. Hello, I'm Karen Angus Cole. Uh, My Twitter handle is at KAngusScience if you want to follow me on Twitter. Um, I am a lecturer at the University of Bath in the UK. Uh, where I teach undergraduate and postgraduate taught students. Previously, before working at Bath, I worked as a secondary school science teacher um, and I was assistant head of department and then I transitioned into working in higher education. And I teach um, my undergraduates about science education. So when I saw the call for the impact issue on recruitment and retention, I thought that I'd write an article to share my um, experience of helping science graduates to start to think about teaching as a potential career. So in Impact, you'll find my article, which is called Recruiting STEM Graduates into Teaching. And the reason I wanted to share this with readers of Impact, um, to share it beyond Bath, to share our practice, was to show how we can work to support students to think of a career in teaching as an integral part of their degree. So a lot of students might do their degree and then think, okay, I'll go and do a PGCE or a school-centered initial teacher training program. Um, But what I find really powerful about the science education units is that the students can take these units as part of their degree. So they don't have to find extra time to be able to um, find out about science education. The first unit out of the two actually um, enables the students to spend um, four mornings in a local secondary school science department observing teaching um, and using that to inform an assignment that they write. Um, And the key thing here is that it helps students who might not necessarily have those connections. They might not know people who are teachers. They might not have the confidence to approach school. So it gives them the option without having to find extra time on top of their busy studies to actually go and find out about science education and determine whether it might be something that they would like to pursue. 
Um, I mean, science graduates have huge numbers of different career options. And so by integrating this into their degree, um, I feel like it gives them an opportunity to explore this as a potential career option um, in quite an inclusive, integrated way. So without the additional pressures of, of finding the time to do that, as I said, outside of their studies. Another really important part of this is I wanted to share how... Um, it means that the university can have really great partnerships with local schools. So at Bath, we don't actually have um, a PGCE programme. We don't have an initial teacher training route. But we do have partnerships with schools because of these units. And it works in both ways. So the schools, um, obviously, they accept our students on placements. But then I also share, uh, share opportunities with the teachers so that they can potentially get involved with research networks. The students that go and visit the schools um, can interact with um, the students at the schools, the pupils, and give them information about what it's like to study at Bath, for example, and study at university. And so I guess the key reason that I wanted to share this approach is because there, there are opportunities that could be fostered um, if we have more, more relationships, if local schools get in touch with their universities, initiatives might develop, be developed. And it's not just about science. So this could be done for maths, for English, for other areas where degree programmes might offer an education um, unit or they might be able to liaise with schools for a short placement and just to enable students to be able to explore these approaches but also to be able to learn from schools to work with schools to provide partnerships in a local area across sectors of education and um, I think this is because it's really important because we all really want all children at school to have a really good education and so we want to be able to recruit great graduates into teaching and um, we want to be able to ensure that all of these graduates have a good understanding before they commit themselves to extra training, which can be cost, which can cost, which can be, um, which can take a lot of time. And and we know that teachers, um, teacher recruitment, teacher retention is is a is a big issue um, in the UK. And so by giving students at university an opportunity to kind of explore what it might be like to be a teacher um, before they have to sign up to a PGCE which costs a lot um, which um, or, or any other form of initial teacher training which might require them to relocate for example at least they have a bit of a flavour because they've been able to interact with schools and so this isn't the only way in which this could work there could be loads of different ways and I just I'd just suggest taking a look at the article and seeing what you think. And if you are um, a teacher, it might give you ideas of things that you could get in touch with your local university about. Or if you're a university, maybe there are some local schools that you could get in touch with. And together, if we work collaboratively, it feels like we might be able to help the teacher recruitment crisis that is occurring in, the, in this country at the moment. And just to work together and collaborate so that we can ensure that we're getting the best teachers possible into our schools so that we can give our, our children the best education possible. So yeah, take a look, see what you think. And I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. You can, um, as I say, you can follow me on Twitter and yeah, look forward to hearing your thoughts on the article and our approach. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast.
We have noticed that there is a surprising lack of research using national representative data into where minority ethnic teachers actually teach in England. We think it's important to establish this because uh, their pattern of employment can have implications for their retention. We found that the most influential characteristics of schools employing a large proportion of minority ethnic teachers is the location of schools in London. These teachers are also concentrated in ethnically diverse schools uh, in terms of other staff and uh, pupils who speak English as an additional language. And this is true in London and elsewhere in the country. So these teachers work in schools where they can actually make a difference to the lives of young people from minority ethnic groups. That's why their low retention rates are particularly worrying. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. It's great to be back and I hope you agree. Thank you so much to everyone who has contributed to today's episode. In two weeks, on the 7th of March, I intend to put out the next episode on Doug Lamov's teaching in the online classroom. As I speak, we're waiting to hear about the return to -to face-to-face teaching. In any event, that's when this episode will be coming. Either it'll help you to reflect on what you've been doing this time, or to look forward to your continued practice. I've had some great volunteers step forward so far, but I need more. Has this book influenced your remote teaching practice? let me know. I've not decided the exact schedule after this, so please do pop over to my Twitter or Instagram profiles, check out the books on offer and let me know what you'd like to see and hear. Please do get in contact if you're enjoying the podcast, maybe you're new to listening or you've been a quiet listener for some time. If you're feeling generous, a donation to my coffee fund would be greatly appreciated too. And until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash pagepracticepodcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.